The night was hot. Even without the blazing sun, it was impossible to get comfortable. The night was going to be a sleepless one, and God did he need sleep. The countless hours he spent that day bent over picking cotton, left his back sore, his feet raw, his hands and forearms scratched open and bloody. Somewhere in another hut, a baby starts to cry. The sound of hushing becomes frantic. He huffed a bit. Better quiet that thing down before it wakes the masters. They wouldn't be happy. He switched his focus to the crickets. Their almost deafening call almost lulled him to sleep. But there, quiet, so quiet, he almost thought he had finally gone insane. But then, footsteps. And the sound grew louder. The call into action. He had been too cowardly the last time. And this time... This time, he crept out of the shack he called home, stepping over sleepless bodies of his fellow slaves. He followed the footsteps, joining his voice with theirs. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Welcome back to Anna Tall Tales. I'm Amanda. And I'm Andrea. And today we are going to talk about some of the legends of the Underground Railroad. I'm so excited about this one. I've been looking forward to it. This is going to be a fun one and we will try to keep it light and not super depressing. Yeah. Much like everything else we touch on, it could go either way. Yeah. For those who don't know, have forgotten, or never really understood what the Underground Railroad was. It was a network of roads and buildings used by enslaved African Americans to escape slavery to freedom. Freedom people usually think as being Canada, but it was also Mexico, the Bahamas, or other northern states. Yes, and even the the people that made it into Mexico and Canada especially, they were not enslaved anymore, but there was still a lot of hardships that they faced as far as segregation and lack of work and signs of the times. Yeah, freedom, unfortunately, meant not having to be forced to work, but it didn't mean happily ever after. Yeah. Now, the Underground Railroad is another one of those, similar to Johnny Appleseed, that I did not realize until we started doing research on this. Part of the reason that apparently it is taught so much in Ohio, you know, passed along information-wise, is because while other northern states had branches and trunk lines of the Underground Railroad, the vast majority of the routes went through Ohio. Yeah, there's a map I have that just... It literally probably 70% of the routes marked on the map go through Ohio. It's kind of insane. So part of what happened that began the, that began the actual movement that has become known as the Underground Railroad was Congress establishing what was called the Northwest Ordinance in 1787. And one of the provisions forbade slavery in any new future state admitted to the Union north of the Ohio River. And after that, not long after that, Congress added to that ordinance a new law that made it a federal crime 
to give aid or harbor escaping slaves that could be punished by severe fines or imprisonment. So you couldn't own slaves, but you also couldn't help them escape. So mind your own business type of thing. Also allowed plantation owners to employ freelance bounty hunters to retrieve their property, a.k.a. the other human beings. (laughs) There were a lot of acts and stuff, but the one I have from 1793 authorizes any federal district judge or circuit court judge or any state magistrate to decide finally and without jury or trial the status of an alleged fugitive slave. But that just like, not if you are a fugitive slave, if you look like someone who's a fugitive slave or have the same name or talk the same as someone who's escaped, even if you were free, congratulations, you're now a slave. Yeah, without, it's an individual unilateral decision. Yeah. It was not a good time, but you can, Not a great time. You can see why that very quickly before even the 1787 Northwest Ordinance became a thing, why there were abolitionists forming secretive societies and networks that were helping shuttle these slaves from plantations and from these lives into northern states, into Canada, into Mexico. Now, with Ohio, obviously, we're way far away from Mexico, but we're extremely close to Canada, like more than I ever realized or ever thought about that much, actually. Yeah. And it was interesting, very interesting to me how all of this came into being. Um, So the entire, the entirety of the Underground Railroad, that's a blanket name for a group that most of these people did not know each other. There was not a lot of contact made between different members that would, that would help. So you might know that you need to send this group of people on to the next place and you may know where that is, but you wouldn't necessarily as a member of the underground railroad, you wouldn't necessarily know the exact address or what that person's name was or the the next person along the way, the next stop along the way that would help. And that was all to protect each other. Because if you didn't know, then you couldn't get somebody else in trouble and vice versa. Yeah. So part of why there, the reason that Ohio had the most active network within the underground railroad is two or threefold. Ohio had nearly 3,000 miles of routes used by escaping runaway slaves for two or three reasons. First of all, Ohio was bordered by two slave states. We had Virginia and Kentucky, which means that there was 400 miles, give or take a few, of border between slave state and free state. Add to that, Ohio was the closest state to Canada with only about 250 miles at the most from anywhere along the Ohio River to Lake Erie. So you could be in what's now Portsmouth, Ohio, and have approximately 250 miles is all 
to travel to get to the shore of Lake Erie and freedom. Now, the second slash third ish part of that is Ohio also had one of the largest populations of Quakers. And with Pennsylvania being first by a small margin. Um, now, the Pennsylvania Quakers had a lot to do with the abolitionist movement in general, but they did more on the paperwork side over the border in Pennsylvania. And the Quaker population in Ohio, especially in the east and southeast portion of, of the state, to directly move escaping slaves on their way north. And so you couple that with the amount of border between Kentucky and Virginia and Ohio and the relatively short pathway to Lake Erie. And it was the, the chosen route for many, many slaves. Now, the other thing that I found really interesting is at the time that these people were fleeing from the southern states into Ohio, what the Ohio River looked like is way different than it is now. So there's been a system of locks put in place and a system of, um, not a system, but a series of dredgings and dams built to be able to move goods as far as barges and things and big ships. And now the Ohio River is massively wide and massively deep. Well, at the time that these folks were escaping across the Ohio River, especially during the dry times of the summer, there wasn't necessarily a lot of water in the Ohio River to the point where there was different places that they didn't even need to swim across it. And so that made the high time of summer while everything was dry a prime time to get across the river. But they also used the middle of winter when there was enough ice bridges and damming happen to escape over the ice, which I thought was extremely interesting. Yeah, I, I do remember seeing that. And I do have a story about someone crossing the Ohio River uh, later on. The Underground Railroad, no one's quite sure how it got its name. Uh, the story that you will hear uh, is there was a fugitive slave named Tice Davis in 1831. Uh, he was escaping from his master and his pursuers when he crossed the Ohio River and disappeared to the point where that the men chasing him remarked, quote, as if he had gone off on an underground railroad, unquote. The problem with that one is rail cars and railroads were invented in 1804 and they wouldn't be popular for another 50 years so whether or not these people even knew what a railroad was is up for debate yeah i i saw an article that likened it to the invention of the internet and how back in the late 70s early 80s the internet was a thing but it wasn't really a popular concept or a well-understood concept until more like the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Which was bizarre to think about as far as the railroad goes, but it makes sense. It does. So for this to be considered the Underground Railroad, it would probably have been coined probably by like a newspaper or something in the later years 
Um, and that's basically, I read one article that said it was due to the mass amount of routes and transportation of cargo, if you consider cargo slaves trying to escape to freedom. I'm pretty impressed that you even found a story that went along with it as far as how it got its name, because everything that I had found just stated, it's not clear when the term the Underground Railroad was first used. (laughs) No, that's all I could find was this story. And I was like, okay, but then everybody says it's not real. So where did it, and nobody could tell me where it came from. So I pieced together bits and pieces and that's what I have. So when in doubt, blame newspapers for everything. Yes. And that's a very popular thing to happen with this particular topic. And it's so funny to me in some ways, because one, it is such a hot topic as far as the racism side of things goes. And historians fight over who gets to have the legends and stories here. And it almost amuses me in a way because as far as them fighting with this, not the concept of the Underground Railroad, but historians take on this, because it doesn't belong to anybody in particular. There's several sides of this story. And there's several groups of people that all worked for the same outcome. And the entire nature of the Underground Railroad was to be secretive. This was not only a state level crime, this was a federal crime. This was something that if you were caught as an escaped slave, you could be sent back to your master, your owner, who could do whatever they pleased with you, including and up to killing you. And on the side of being a conductor or being a part of the the infrastructure of the Underground Railroad to move people. If you were caught, you could be fined, you could lose your business, you could lose your family, you could be put in jail, and you could up to being killed for this. By the very nature of this, it was super, super secretive. And now, looking back and trying to learn about it, everybody's like, well, none of this was written down, and none of this can be substantiated because nobody wrote anything down, so you're just making that up. The other thing is, we also have autobiographies from people who lived it, and historians are discounting those. It's like, these, these people were actually there? You weren't even alive yet? Would, would you, like, just calm down, please? Yes, and I think that's where I was going with that more than anything, is to a lot of the historians that... And I'm not discounting the fact that they've spent a lot of their time and their career into putting in a lot of research and we've spent, you know, a week or so reading. But at the same time, who do you think you are to discount the stories of either A, people that lived through this and fought through it, and B, the families of these people on the side of the escaped slaves and the side of the people that helped to get them to freedom? Who do you think you are to discount their family stories or their own stories. And instead of getting upset about it, because life's too short for that crap, it's just, it's funny to me in a way, because it's like, come on, you're being ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, we will get into some controversy with the next one, but I just, it kind of makes me just shake my head and sigh. Yes. And I think that's one thing where, you, you hit the nail on the head as far as the word controversy 
the entire subject is so controversial in a lot of ways, but the story and the actual what happened is amazing all the way around and should be celebrated instead yeah. of fought like, over. Like this was a huge feat of engineering and is spectacular at the amount of just cooperation and empathy people had yeah. to have. And the courage, yeah. holy shit, the courage to leave in the first place. Right. And it just, it was a really interesting and deeply moving topic to to spend time on. But anyway, back to the terminology. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so everything that I found was just, it was unclear. Sometime between the 1830s and 1840s as actual railroads started to become a form of transportation that was better known. And some of the railroads began to hit Ohio, that the terminology was started to be adopted from that in the effort to keep things on the down low. Um, and of course, as we've talked about, there was no railroad and there was no underground <laughs> <laughs> with the underground railroad. There were no subways in the 1800s, despite what my, like, first grader brain was telling me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. But the the term underground was used in the the context of it being illegal and done mostly in the dark, Um and the term railroad, from what I found, was used mostly because the people involved in these activities commonly associated the terminology from railroads with their jobs. Tracks or freedom trails were the routes taken. Stations or depots were hiding places. Conductors were guides along tracks. Agents were sympathizers who helped slaves connect to the Underground Railroad. Station masters were people who hid slaves. Passengers, cargo, fleece, or freight were escaped slaves. Tickets indicated slaves were traveling. Stockholders were financial supporters. Terminal heaven promised land referred to the end destination, whether that was Canada or Mexico. Yeah. And apparently, this was news to me, but in some areas of the country... The Underground Railroad is not known as the Underground Railroad, even today. Um, that is now the most commonly used term as of about the 1850s. But there's some other terms such as the Freedom Train or the Gospel Train that are still very commonly used in reference to what we know as the hmm. Underground Railroad. That is interesting. Side note, the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society was formed in 1835, officially, in Zanesville. And their whole mission statement was a pledge to fight for the abolition of slavery and establishment of laws protecting African Americans after they were freed. So the first, or I guess next, uh, kind of cool, fun legend is about Freedom Quilt. Oh my goodness, don't even get me started, because... I love quilts. I, I love I them. am going to get you started about this. So Freedom Quilts was a, I'm going to go with story that had been passed down. And I didn't write down 
the woman's name, but it was a book called Hidden in Plain View by Tobrin and Dobard. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. I'm so excited. So little background on my love for quilts. When my mom was very ill, I went to an Amish auction with a friend of mine and I fell in love with all of the quilts. And when they started auctioning them and they were getting anywhere from 600 to $6,000 for these quilts, I was like, uh, I have a really inexpensive sewing machine I got for a 4-H project. I think I can make one of those. And so while I sat with my mom, while she was very terminally ill, I taught myself how to quilt. And the first quilt that I ever made was a queen size Lone Star quilt. And I've done several others since then. And I just, within the last three weeks, finally purchased my first big girl sewing machine. And I have been cutting out more quilts. So when I realized that there was an entire part of the Underground Railroad that had to do with quilts, I may have gone a little bit crazy doing some research. That is fine. This story began way after the fact almost 150 years after the Underground Railroad in what we were speaking about in the 1830s, in the early 1800s. So a woman by the name of Jacqueline Tobin bought a quilt from another woman in Charleston, South Carolina, named Ozella McDaniel Williams. This happened in 1994. And while Jacqueline Tobin was buying this quilt from Miss Williams. Miss Williams spoke of a family tradition passed along in an oral history for generations about quilt patterns, such as log cabins, monkey wrenches, wagon wheels, Jacob's ladder, which are all different quilt blocks being used as directions to aid escaping slaves on the Underground Railroad. Now, Tobin was completely intrigued by this story and quilts I don't want to say they've lost some of their meaning in recent history because I don't believe they have almost everybody loves a handmade cotton quilt but the the quilting circles and the patterns that are taught from mother to daughter it's definitely lost some of the popularity I believe is the right word not everybody does it anymore um but not that long ago, that was a part of, you didn't sit and chat with your friends on the computer or on your cell phone. You went to your quilting circle or your church's quilting circle or your neighbor's house and you sat and you hand quilted and chatted. That's how you socialized. So quilting would have been the perfect time to share stories and traditions, to talk about how do you get out of this life? And that is what Miss Williams and, and Tobin spoke about. Now, this intrigued Jacqueline Tobin to the point where she enlisted the help of a friend, fellow quilter, and history professor who at the time was associated with Harvard University. So not like a slouch of a, a history professor named Raymond Dobird. And they together researched and wrote a book called Hidden in Plain View, A Secret Story of Quilts and the Underground Railroad. Oh my goodness, did this book that was based on a story 
from a single family's history turn the historical scholarly world upside down. They were highly offended and are still highly offended by this whole concept for some reason. So I can explain that a little bit. There is only this one account. Like, I don't want to discount anyone's family oral history at all. I'm saying that if this actually happened, that is fantastic and amazing and I'm all for it. But the flip side is there's only the one story about quilts being used in this manner. Um, Other issues include if a slave had enough fabric to make a quilt, let alone 11, they would have used it to keep warm, not send messages. Quilts were made for their masters at their master's will, so the patterns and colors were not theirs to choose. Um, The quilt blocks quoted in the book as being used didn't necessarily exist pre-Civil War. Blocks could have many different names and overlapping names across the country. And if the quilts were hung out to show roots and patterns, everybody was walking around at night. How are people supposed to see the quilts, let alone determine pattern and color? Oh, there's, there's lots of, I can see where the, I can see both sides of the story on it for sure. That's one side of where things came from as far as the, the deep offense (laughs) with historians. Um, and on the other side of it, from some of the accounts and some of the, the history that's been taught. So out of one book that was written as just basically a note in history of a family's account, a lot of different people took it as fact and ran with it and it's gained a life of its own. There is some speculation that the slaves themselves were not making these quilts as much as at these different stations and things. They were being made and hung out as they were coming to the Ohio borders and used as almost a a signpost versus a story, which I find that much more believable than the slaves themselves were making quilts to pass amongst each other. I very much do too. And, but like I said, I'm not even a hundred percent sure that it was so much, there was actual physical quilts, but while they were making and quilting for their masters, like I said, they're not going to be supervised super closely at that point. And I don't know who all has made quilts, let alone by hand. It takes massive amounts of time to do it with a machine let alone by hand which is why it was very popular for multiple people to work on the same quilt at a time but while you're spending days and days and days on end working on just the quilt top let alone actually sandwiching and quilting the layers together what do you think they were doing they were talking they were planning they were passing along routes, they were passing along news, they were keeping up to date with people, with themselves, with each other, with their family that were at different plantations and different areas. And perhaps it wasn't even necessarily that there was physical quilts being made as much as they used a code while they were speaking, such as, you know, let's talk about Jacob's Ladder, and that would tell them if they needed to go east, west, north, or south. 
the other side of that is maybe a story like that or something that happened along those lines translated through oral history as it does, which we have found out almost every topic that we've researched into several generations later. Yeah, my great, great, great grandma, they made these quilts. It was told to a stranger who then went and researched, who then wrote a book. And now it's part of history and it belongs to yeah. to an entire culture. No, I, I really like that. Like people were sitting around and they'd say, oh, well, you know, when you're making a log cabin and that would be, you know, whatever that was supposed to mean. But it was quilt talk because they did use uh, coded messages in newspapers, letters, songs, stories as instructions on how to get places. So that was a thing that happened. So for that to be, oh, yeah, use a quilt block name as a code name for whatever it was. And then it just became, well, they made quilts. I can totally see that happening. I can too. And I can also see where, you know, a lot of the the movement along the actual routes happened at night. Not all of it did, especially once they got across the Ohio River. There was a lot of places that were safe houses or towns that were safe. And everybody was on board with just hush, hush let's keep them moving, let's keep them housed, let's keep them fed, let's keep them safe. And who is going to question a quilt hung out on a porch rail or on a clothing line? And if they had been discussed and taught within these quilting circles, which the women would do the quilting for the most part, but then they would spend time working with the men or going home to their husbands and that information gets passed along. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of different connotations now. And maybe things were regional as far as how it was used. I don't know. I wasn't there is what it comes down to. But it's, it's very, very feasible in my mind that this is a true story. So just a few examples, and I'm, I'm not going to get too long winded because I realize I'm probably one of the few that's super intrigued by this. But blocks like the monkey wrench block would be used to tell people to collect materials, both physically and mentally. So collect your tools, get everything together, whether that was putting away food, whether that was making sure that you had a compass with you, whether that was mentally preparing for a long part of the journey that you weren't going to have access to a lot of water or a lot of sleep or whatever. A wagon wheel block was used to advise when to pack essentials and when not to, very similar to how you would pack a wagon to make a trip. The bear paw block often denoted when to travel through the woods and follow animal sign to be able to find fresh water and food. The basket block oftentimes was used to establish a safe house where you could replenish your supplies. Um, The crossroads block was often used to represent a city that offered refuge where you would be safe. The log cabin block was often used to represent a safe house. And this part of this is where I got the whole, I think a lot of times, like if you laid a log cabin quilt out over a fence rail, over like a porch rail or on a, um, a laundry line, then it would be a sign that you're a safe house. Yeah. That that's kind of where I got that from. 
and there's so many more. I found several different that talked about the flying geese block, the North Star block, um, Drunkard's Path, the Dresden Wheel. So there's just, there's lots of stories. And over the last 20 or so years since that book initially came out, it's been added to and people have come out and spoken. Now, the other thing that really got me excited about this whole deal, in case you couldn't tell that I'm really excited about this whole deal, um, was there was a quote by a woman named Anna Lopez, who is the education coordinator at the Plymouth Historical Museum. And she is emphatic about seeing no reason why the story of quilt codes can't be a fact. And she goes on, and this is a direct quote. She says, what I tell kids is who writes history? Men do, mostly white men. Then I ask them who made quilts? Women did. And a lot of black women made quilts and passed on their oral history as they quilted. No one wrote down their history. So who actually knows outside of those women? Yep, that's about it. So yeah, I thought that was a really cool part of it. It got me super excited. Not even sorry. You shouldn't be sorry. <laughs> I can already tell you this is going to be a long episode. Sorry, not sorry for that. The next one I have is songs as instructions. Yes. So we do know from Frederick Douglass's autobiography and Harriet Tubman's biography that the songs Now Let Me Fly and Go Down Moses were songs that expressed how to get places on the Underground Railroad and when to leave and had double meanings. There are other songs that have been speculated but not confirmed to be used in this way. Um, generally, though, they're thought of as hopeful songs or longing songs more than anything else. Um, these songs include Follow the Drinking Gourd, which is a song about following the North Star, which was a huge guide to getting you to Canada. Now, before you move on from that one, because this, believe it or not, there's a lot of controversy as well with these songs that even through biographies and autobiographies are said by people that lived it, that they were used as direction and code. Despite that, this is another one where historians are like, no, dude, this is not actually what it was used for. Now, I found the lyrics to the song, Follow the Drinking Gourd. So this is, this is one of the songs that they are saying probably wasn't actually used for direction. It was just a hopeful song. And it's only four verses long. But it goes, when the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is awaiting for to carry you to freedom if you follow the drinking gourd. The riverbank makes a very good road. The dead trees will show you the way. Left foot, peg foot, traveling on. Follow the drinking gourd. The river ends between two hills. Follow the drinking gourd. There's another river on the other side. Follow the drinking gourd. When the great big river meets the little river, follow the drinking gourd. For if the old man is awaiting to carry you to freedom you'll follow the drinking gourd. I, I'm sorry. How is that not directions? Well, I mean, it's, it's a little obvious, but at the same time, masters weren't paying any attention to what their slaves were chattering about. But the drinking gourd was in reference to the Big Dipper, which North Star, anybody? 
Yeah, the handle points to the North Star if you did not know that. And a lot of these songs, almost all of them, are and were used as field chants. So uh, they weren't necessarily sung like we think of them now. They were chanted to keep rhythm as they worked. Like sea shanties. Very Yes, exactly. Very similar concepts. Other songs included Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Wade in Water, and Steal Away. Mm-hmm. I really only know Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, but the others, you can find the lyrics for all these online. They're pretty obvious would be used as instruction or some wayfinding. So part of Wade in the Water is... Again, it's only three stanzas, but the chorus is Wade in the Water, Wade in the Water, Children. And then it talks about Wade in the Water, God's going to trouble the water. Who are those children all dressed in red? God's going to trouble the water. Must be the ones that Moses led. God's going to trouble the water. Who are those children all dressed in white? Must be the ones of the Israelites. God's going to trouble the water. Wade in the Water, Wade in the Water, Children. And it, it just goes on and... Again, you had to go across the Ohio River, and the Ohio River borders all of Ohio. That's the whole point. I, I think everybody probably knows Sweet Lo- Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Maybe, maybe not. But it talks about, again, the opening stanza, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming for me, come, come for to carry me home. If I get there before I do, come to, to carry me home. Tell all my friends that I'm coming to, come for to carry me home. Okay, the River Jordan. What were Quakers famous for wearing? Lots of white. And then another one that Harriet Tubman used to sing this song when approaching her group. It's untitled and it goes, Hail, O oh, hail, ye happy spirits. Death no more shall make you fear. Grief nor sorrow, pain nor anguish shall no more distress you there. Around him then thousands angels, always ready to obey command. They are always hovering around you till you reach the heavenly land. Jesus, Jesus will go with you. He will lead you to his throne. He who died has gone before you through the winepress all alone. He whose thunder shall shake creation. He who bids the planets roll. He who rides among the tempest and whose scepter sways the whole. Reading through these, I listened to a few different things. You can find different um, versions of these on YouTube fairly easily and they just there's something about them before you even really realize what you're getting into that just grabs your soul that's about it as far as like legends and controversial things um, I just have a couple cool stories and noteworthy places and people go for it the first one is Betsy Hamilton was one of at least 20 accused conductors of the Underground Railroad in Bracken County. She helped with the escape of Ed Morford, a servant of her sister-in-law. Morford was being taken to Brooksville, Kentucky to be sold by the sheriff when he broke loose and ran away. He ran to Hamilton's home in Germantown, where she hid him in the stairwell. When the sheriff and others searching for the slave came knocking at her door, she told them she didn't know where he was, but they could look in the wells and the barns. After a few days, he was nowhere to be found. Her husband came to her and asked if she knew where the slave was. She said, Vincent, ask me no questions and I will tell you no lies. (laughs) She is buried in Germantown, Ohio. I just thought that was a cool story because I have heard ask me no questions, tell me no lies so many times throughout my life that like 
that's apparently where it comes from. That is where it comes from. And she was so sassy. I loved that story. Like, can you imagine just kind of casually breaking the law and your husband being an important member of the town being like, hey, honey, um, do you know anything about this? If you don't want the truth, don't ask me that. Mind your own business. Plausible deniability. He just recognizes boss lady. I'm just throwing up my hands and walking away. <laughs> yeah. Now, there was many towns in Ohio that were very split along this whole thing. And some towns just flat out were like, yeah, you're welcome here. We don't even see you. We're going to hide you. We're going to take care of you. You can move amongst us as though you were completely free. And if anybody asks questions, we know nothing. We saw nothing. Um, and then there's towns where they would happily turn you in and you had to be very careful through that specific area. But there was a lot of people like Betsy Hamilton throughout the entire, the entirety of the necessity of the Underground Railroad. Yes. So the next story is about uh, a woman and her family. And this story is a little bit sad, but I just need to throw it into not everything's a happy, sassy ending. So in the middle of the night, some pro-slavery Kentuckians uh, broke through the doors of Vincent and Fanny Wigglesworth, Washington Township home. Fanny and her four children were abducted and disappeared across the river into Kentucky. Everyone was in an uproar because while they were living in Ohio and her children were born free, Fanny was actually only 16 years escaped from slavery. At 45, she was an asset of a recently deceased woman's estate. Her estate was passed on to, I don't know who they are in relation, but it says William Moore and William Middleton. Those men organized a group of men to take back their, I can't even say that, I'm going to make myself puke, quote, property, unquote. Vincent ran to the Fee home. Robert Fee was an abolitionist and helped in the Underground Railroad. And they got together and figured and raised money to rescue his family from these people because they took his wife and his children, even though his children were born into freedom. So they made uh, arrangements to purchase the family for $150 they paid 20 up front, and when they got back to the meeting place with the rest of the money, Fanny and her children were nowhere to be found. Yeah, and they never did find them. They never did find them. So unfortunately, not a happy ending. People did get caught. People did die doing this. This was... A huge undertaking and even if you were free you were never really free but it didn't stop them from working for it to try for it to get out and the most amazing thing to me is a lot of these slaves that made it to freedom ended up going back for family members and friends to help them escape as well yes there are a lot of stories about rich white people hiding slaves in their basements and their attics and helping their african-american brethren but most of the underground railroad people 
like helping the slaves were other freed slaves or otherwise free African Americans. Yeah. Like majority people like John Parker. John Parker was an African American who was purchased by a doctor and was lucky enough to be taught by that doctor's son and was able to eventually buy his freedom and spent many years housing and shepherding people across state lines. In his autobiography, The Promised Land, Parker depicts one of those milestones when he helped a slave escape from a strove plantation across the river. After taunting one of the strove sons who worked at his foundry, Parker decided he had had enough and would rescue a slave from the plantation. In the middle of the night, he went across the river and found a male slave who wanted freedom, but refused to leave his wife and child behind. The slave owner and his wife took the slave couple's baby into their bedroom each night as a way to deter them from escaping. Parker snuck into the slave owner's bedroom, took the baby in the middle of the night. He took the family across the river where they remained safe and out of sight. It's amazing. First off, that's horrible. I'm going to keep your baby with me so you don't leave. Yeah. But like, also badass of John Parker to just like blatantly and boldly sneak into their room and steal the baby back. Yeah. But his house is in Ripley, Ohio, and I believe is a museum. Yes. It, it there is a Ohio is home to several underground railroad museums. It's kind of incredible. There's another one in um, Flushing, Ohio, that was established in 1993 by Dr. John Maddox and his wife, Rosalind. And they have some really extensive collections of publications, books, articles, and extensive memorabilia. I don't have any stories with this one, but the Gammon House in Springfield, Ohio, is one of three houses still standing that was owned by an African-American aiding in the Underground Railroad. It's a museum. Uh, At one point it was slated for demolition, but it was purchased and saved and restored. That's amazing. I really kind of want to go there because Springfield isn't too far. I think it's like an hour, if that. There is the Rankin House. I think it's also in Ripley, Ohio. Yes. Is a historic landmark and museum. Uh, Reverend Rankin and his wife helped 2,000 enslaved people to freedom. That is so many people to not get caught. It is. And some of it was (laughs) he hid behind a little bit his status as a reverend and basically just scared people that might have questioned him otherwise, (laughs) which I thought was amazing. Uh, there's a story with him about a woman named Eliza escaping from Bracken County on a cold winter night. She was escaping with her child. Uh, she was being chased by a man named Chancey Shaw. He basically sat back and watched her wade the Ohio River in the middle of winter and saw her get through it and was basically like, you know what? That house right there, go to that house and I never saw you. Yeah. Just like, he was so impressed with how she was able to save herself and her child and not drown in this icy river that he was like, you know what? Never mind. Not worth it. Just go on. Yeah. And the Rankins, for their part, heard the woman downstairs causing a commotion and wringing out her clothes, trying to get her and her child warm. And they were just like, 
hey, come on in. We got some food for you. Have some dry clothes. Uh, this is where you're going to be sleeping. Just like in the middle of the night. They were like, yeah, hey, welcome. Come on in. Yeah. Which I think happened more than than we can understand. Like that was part of being part of the Underground Railroad was just, we have no idea when you're coming. We have no idea when you're going to leave, but we just always have the light on and the fire warm. Yep. Yeah. So while we're speaking of massive amounts of people saved, can we talk about Levi Coffin? I was actually just going to bring him up next. (laughs) Great minds. (laughs) Do you want to take this one? Yeah. I just, I had a great place in my heart for this because he just, first of all, he was born on my niece's birthday. Well, more accurately, I guess my niece was born on his birthday because he lived and died long before she was even thought about. But he was born in Gulford County, North Carolina, to a Quaker family who, again, the Quakers have helped, went through a lot of this. It was greatly against their beliefs that a one human being could own another human being. And they not only preached it, they did something about it, which I have so much respect for. So Levi Coffin, again, born in North Carolina in October of 19 of 1798 to a Quaker family who he was greatly influenced by one of his preachers named John Woolman. Wool man, not woman, Woolman, who believed that slaveholding was in no way compatible with the beliefs of the Quakers and openly advocated for emancipation of the slaves. So he grew up in the South coffin was very often exposed to slavery and sympathized with their condition at the age of 15 he began to help his family with assisting slaves escaping by offering them shelter and food by 1821 coffin had become a teacher so (laughs) i thought that was kind of interesting that he followed all of this and became a teacher and he opened a school that he tried to tried to get slaves and their children into the school to teach them how to read, which didn't go as planned because their owners would not permit them to attend. So in Yeah, they wouldn't be too happy about it. No, I mean they didn't didn't ever really want to admit that these were humans, were people, you know. In eighteen twenty six he moved to Indiana and spent 20 years assisting more than 2,000 enslaved people escape their bondage. And there was such a high volume of people coming through his home that his home was actually nicknamed the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad. So he spent 20 years in Indiana and in 1847 moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where he bought and operated a store that sold only goods produced by free labor. And that store was called the Western Free Produce Association. He continued at this point while in Cincinnati to operate his home as a stop for the Underground Railroad. And during the Civil War, he visited numerous camps and continued to aid slaves in their quest for freedom. As the war ended, he raised over $100,000 for the Western Freedmen's Aid Society, which provided food, clothing, money, and other aid for freed slaves. With the war, the Civil War over, it didn't just, slavery didn't just end like the same day that the war was over. That's not how that worked. 
It did not. People are stubborn and truly believed they had a right to own these people. So, but as far as Levi Coffin goes, when the the war was over, the 15th Amendment was passed. It granted African Americans the right to vote in their freedom. At that point, and only that point, did Levi Coffin retire from the public life, and then he wrote his memoirs. He died in September of 1877 and was buried in Cincinnati, Ohio. And there are reports that he freed over 3,000 yeah. slaves. Yeah. 3,000. So, I mean, and again, I know we've talked about it in the past, but at that time, so in today's monies, $100,000 is a lot of money. In the mid-1800s, $100,000 was a lot of money. Yeah, he was he was pretty important to this whole venture. Yeah. There are a lot of other important people, um, more famous people that I decided not to include just because time and there is so much and everybody knows who Harriet Tubman is. I mean, come on. But so if you're at all interested or anything, please continue researching. It is a hard but extremely fascinating topic. And there are so many stories out there. So, so many. So this is one thing, just a side note. I did not realize that Harriet Tubman not only was so important to the um, Underground Railroad, but that she also was particularly close with suffragettes, <laughs> um, like Susan B. Anthony and Martha Wright. Like, I just, I thought that was extremely interesting. I'm somehow not at all surprised. No, but again, it's just such an interesting thing that it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it goes back to time is weird. Because when I think about Susan B. Anthony, I don't automatically think, oh, yeah, she knew Harriet Tubman. Exactly. And the whole deal with the ending of slavery and the Civil War coinciding with the suffragette movement, it just, in my mind, they were always two such separate things, but they, they aren't. They were not at, they were not at separate points in the timeline. My fav my favorite one side tangent is, uh, I think it was Martin Luther King and Anne Frank were alive at the same time. Yeah. Like, what? I also love the one where Abraham Lincoln, ninjas and cowboys and the telegraph all existed for the same time for like 15 years. And it just blows my mind. Context is, is an amazing thing when we're talking about time and just connecting all the threads that you're like, I had no idea. It's... Yeah, a discovery and so cool and gives me a warm fuzzy feeling and I love it. So Harriet Tubman was again one of the f super famous people that if you don't know who she is shame on you. Um, the other famous Harriet is Harriet Breacher Stowe and she is the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. She again she was around she didn't die until 1896 and again, if you don't know who she is, very well-known author, many books, like I want to say somewhere around 30 books published, tons of short stories, all very interesting reads. If you don't know who she is or you haven't read any of her stuff, shame on you. Go check her out. That is about all I have. That's about all I have. 
Which means it sounds like that's an episode. I think that's an episode. Which means... What? Which means... What? What are we doing next time? I don't know. Well, I have no idea. Ugh. Surprise episode. We've been having more and more of those lately. Surprise episode. Yay. Well, you know what? I wasn't even sure we were going to get to this. Today at work, I had to deal with people that were asking questions along the lines of, if I supposedly beat up my baby mama, what kind of rights do I have? All the way to, if my loan matured, how do I get the bank to refinance my loan? So I did not have a ton of time to think about the next one, but I'm open to suggestions. So you were busy is what you're saying. How dare you have things to do outside of this podcast, Andrea? It was a rough day, in case you couldn't tell. But guys, somebody here has got to have some interesting stories about the Underground Railroad, and we need to hear them. I absolutely need to hear them. Like, I don't want to hear them. Amanda does not want to hear them. We need to hear them. So, you know our email at this point. If you don't, what is wrong with you? How can you not read that? Someone is very sassy today. It is tails at gmail.com. I have my sassy pants on, okay? Uh, you're lucky I have pants on. Send us an email. Send us a message. We have a Facebook account that at least one of us at a time knows how to operate. We have Instagram, we have YouTube, which I have been slacking on and I will catch up. I am really sorry. Get a hold of us. Tell us your stories. We're super excited to hear them. We need some of these cool stories with the Underground Railroad. And uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see about what we're doing next time. And until then, be good. Stay safe. Have a happy, I think it's Memorial Day this Monday. Yes, it's Memorial Day. Even though by the time you're hearing this, that's long over. Yeah. Sentiment still stands. Uh, We will see you guys next time. We'll see y'all next time. This has been A&A Tall Tales, an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast. Our intro sounds are Crackling Fireplace by Julius H. and Nightwoods by Widget Studios. Our intro song is Harmonica Solo by Julius H. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.